Well, Lord Jesus, we have just sung words which, if we mean them, are quite phenomenal words that we will willingly surrender, submit all that we are, all our own thought-through plans and careful thinking, and we'll submit it and surrender it all to you and willingly accept what your intentions are for our lives. That, that is a remarkable thing that we would dare to sing if it has any resonance with where we truly are in ourselves. I pray, Lord, that you'd help me to teach well, that any obstacles to hearing what you have to say will be removed, that Jesus would be shown in all of his splendor and beauty and marvel, and that we would be changed through our own commitment to obey what we hear, as well as through your Spirit's work in us. And so I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you please take a seat? And would you grab a Bible or on your device? If you need a Bible, do just put a hand up. Mel there at the back will bring you one. So just keep your hand up. Mel and Lana are both there lots this morning. Thank you. Thank you, ladies. They'll bring you a Bible. And would you turn to what's called Hebrews chapter 12? This is on page 1210, page 1210 of the church Bibles, page 1210 of the church's Bibles. Hebrews chapter 12. You can also find it on your device. Uh, and have it there in front of you would be fantastic. Hebrews chapter 12. And we're actually only going to look uh, really in any kind of detail at the very first sentence. So as you're finding it, uh, let me read it to you, but do keep it open uh, as we journey together. This is what it says, Hebrews 12, sentence 1. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles... And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. I wonder what your image of the Christian life is. Some of us will be fully committed to Jesus, all in for him. Others will be hesitant. We we wear the badge, the label Christian, but there's a hesitation in how full on we are. There's certain steps we won't take, certain rooms of our life that we protect and defend from Jesus' influence. And some of us, obviously, this morning are going to be learning and wondering and thinking about what it means to follow Jesus. That whole spectrum is is covered. But I wonder what image, wherever you might be, you have of the Christian life. Because right here in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, this original sermon transcribed and preserved because of its impact into the church life 2,000 years ago, preserved for us. Right at the heart of the image of the Christian life here is of a marathon of long, hard, difficult running, of running when you don't feel like running, of running when others have quit and aren't continuing, and you keep going, brutal running. And most of us know that a marathon is hard, either because we'd never imagined doing one or because we can remember doing one. Either one of those captures us all, doesn't it? I've done a few in my time. It's one of the reasons I can't walk properly anymore. They are difficult. They are hard. And they are long. And yet that is the predominant image of what it means to follow Jesus here in Hebrews. It's not the only image in the Bible, but it's the predominant one in this part of the Bible and needs to be taken seriously. Did you see it there in sentence number one? Just have a look towards the end of the sentence I ran. It says, run with perseverance, the race. The word there is perseverance that matters, isn't it? It suggests that this is a pretty long and difficult marathon-like run. You've got to keep going. You've got to keep persevering. If you look a little bit further on to sentence three, right at the end of sentence three, it says, do not grow weary and lose heart. 
There is this ongoing threat when you're running for Jesus and with Jesus that you're going to get tired. You're going to get weary. And you're going to lose heart. You're going to wonder, is this worth it? People who have run marathons talk about hitting the wall. It says your body moves from burning carbohydrates for its energy to burning fat. And it's a very demanding and unpleasant experience as your body makes that transition. Most people, it's after about 18 to 20 miles or so. And they talk about hitting a wall, like actually all your energy is gone and you just cannot keep going. And you lose heart and you get weary. And you quit the race actually with three quarters of it done because you've hit that moment. Or or look at sentence 12 a little bit further on over on the right-hand column if you're in the church's Bible. Sentence 12, he says, therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. It's not necessarily the most pleasant image that we'd want, is it? Over the last few weeks, I've spoken quite robustly, if you've been here for the last two or three weeks, uh, teaching out of Hebrews chapter 11. And I've had one or two people come to me and say, Alex, I'm not sure that kind of teaching is going to attract people to the church. And maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong, but I'm not interested in attracting people to the church. I'm interested in attracting people to Jesus and them starting a race that they will actually finish and get to the finish line. So I wonder what kind of image you have in your head of what the Christian life is actually like, what following Jesus is actually like. I get to do more and more uh, engagement and work with and conversations with other churches around the country. We're hosting things called Firestarter Conversations, of which there's been six this year and another six or eight next year to help inspire and encourage churches across the country to see God work in their midst. And one of the things I, I experience more and more is the image of what the church is and what following Jesus is is entirely wrong. That somehow in the church, in the UK, we have sold out to an image that following Jesus is like an easy meander through the woodland. Admiring the bluebells and smelling the roses. And it's not too strenuous or stressful. Or we've presented an image of following Jesus, uh, which is it's a little bit like a brief stadium-filled 100-meter dash. Where the celebration and the rewards come very quickly after a relatively short amount of effort and energy expired. Or we've presented, actually, Christianity as the option of the comfy armchair where we watch others sweat and do the work. (laughs) And yet, actually, though there are many images in the Bible, and some of them more gentle than the brutality of a marathon, one of the central ones is the idea that following Jesus is hard and it's difficult And it's not easy and it's long and there are moments when you'll feel weary and it feels like your heart will be lost and you don't know how you're going to carry on and people you began with you're not going to finish with and you have all sorts of questions and it is just difficult and not for the faint-hearted. Jesus never promised it would be easy. In fact, he promised it would be hard. Take up your cross, he says, and follow him. And right the way through the letter written to Hebrews, and one of the reasons God has preserved it as part of his forever scripture and truth is because it must be true for all time. One of the great risks you see is in the midst of this race of losing heart, of weariness, they're going to quit. They're going to turn back. They're going to step into the side and become part of the cheering crowd and no longer be those actually running. That's the great risk. 
In fact, right the way through Hebrews, that's what we've heard. This command, don't turn back, don't stop, don't turn away, keep going, keep preserving. Almost every chapter of Hebrews has that reference point. Don't turn back, keep going, don't quit, keep running. Let me just show you the last one that we had. It's back in chapter 10. You can flick back a page and see it there. I'd really appreciate it if you would. Chapter 10 and sentence 35 to 36. He says, do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere. So when you've done the will of God, you'll be received what he has promised. Or look down at sentence 35. We do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed. Do you see that repeated command? Keep going. Don't turn away. Don't shrink back. Keep running. Keep running. Keep running. Can I speak personally for a moment? Uh, I had a birthday yesterday. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Anyone get me anything? That's all right. That's all right. I had a birthday yesterday. 41. 41 years old. I know. I've weathered well. I know. I've weathered well. I used to have the six pack. Now I've got the whole barrel. I've got the whole. I've got all the jokes. Okay. Right. 41. But more stark to me actually wasn't 27th of October 1977. That was a big moment, obviously, for me, less so for the rest of the world, but big for me when I was born. But actually, February 19th, 1998, that's when I chose to follow Jesus. That's when I became rationally persuaded and emotionally convinced that Jesus was the ruler to lead my life. So for 20 years this year, I can't believe it. 20 years, I can't, genuinely... I feel like I'm a baby little Christian. 20 years. That's quite a long time, actually, isn't it? Well, some of you are going, yeah, 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 that, that is a long time. In our, in our later service, we'll have people, uh, some younger folk come to our 11.15, and they'll be like, I wasn't even born when you were born again, Alex. You know, they'll be looking at And others in the room right now, 20 years, you're like, that's that, isn't it? You're thinking, that's nothing, that's nothing. It feels to me quite a long time of following Jesus. There are moments I feel quite weary do you? And actually talking to a few folk, it doesn't matter whether it's 20 years or, or two months or three years. You feel quite weary at times, disheartened. We as a church, we began life as Sandler Road Baptist Church, we as a church are 80 years old this year. 80 years old. Here as witnesses proclaiming Jesus to the town of Stafford. But the risk of an 80-year-old church, has it lost that first flush of youth and that, that energy and that zeal? Is it fading? Now, I don't think that describes us. In fact, we count people because people count. We long to love people. And we know that year to date, this year, we've grown by 24%. That, that means one out of every four people is new to our church this year. That's thrilling, isn't it? Absolutely thrilling. Praise Jesus for it. But after 80 years, you start to wonder, is the church starting to quit? Are we starting to look back, to turn away? Or the Baptist family we're part of, the Baptist Union of Great Britain. Most people know it's a Baptist together. That's 205 years old this year. It's ancient of days, isn't it? That's Noah's time. 19, uh, do I mean that? 1813 or something it was founded, something like that, right? 
Is there a risk that actually where we were once zealous and passionate and thrilled and excited, we've just become grey and flaccid and passionless? Is there a risk for you personally, for me personally, for us as a church, for the movement that we're part of nationally, that where we were so focused on God's mission, so thrilled to be running for him and his mission to the world, that what we have now become is simply maintenance and about keeping the doors open and doing business as we're meant to be doing it. The status quo has become more important than anything else. Where we were once so vigilant. Now this describes me. Where in my first days of following Jesus, I was constantly on the lookout for anything that might slow me down or hinder me. Has that vigilance now just been replaced with carelessness? As I just kind of meander along without a rigid, focused determination to pursue Christ at all costs. Where we were once dangerous and risk takers and valued those who would step out into the unknown. Have we now become, as you as an individual, as me as an individual, as us as a church, have we, have we swapped that danger and that risk for security and safety? Is that what we value? Have we suddenly shifted as we run and it's got weary After years of you following Jesus, where we were once lean and fit spiritually, we're now flabby and soft and not serious about what it means to follow and pursue Jesus. My goodness, where we were once part of a movement, do we now celebrate being part of an institute? Could that have happened? I mean, these are genuine questions to me. And particularly as I reflect over the last few weeks where we've been teaching from Hebrews chapter 11, falsely called the heroes of faith. Actually, they're just ordinary people who truly and clearly saw who Jesus was. They're meant to inspire us, not intimidate us. We've used some some images, and I think back and I think, actually, did that once describe me? Did that once describe us as a church? But no longer. Images like talking about if we're going to be the the by-faith people of Hebrews 11, then our lives should be incomprehensible to the people around us who don't know Jesus. Not our words. Our words should be simple and clear and easy to understand. But our lives, our priorities, our decision-making should be incomprehensible to the people around us. I don't get why she uses her money like that. And I'm thinking, actually, where I was once incomprehensible, where we as a church were once incomprehensible, have we suddenly become quite sensible and safe? Have we? There's question marks. There's question marks. I'm asking the question. Yeah. Or one of the images we talked about, which I know lots of you found very provocative in a really good way, was the image that actually Christians are called to be fearless barbarians. Do you remember that sermon, if someone you were here? I couldn't talk for two days after that one, lost my voice practically. Now, I don't mean barbarians in the sense of being cruel or unkind, not at all. I mean barbarians in the sense of being free of the laws of this culture and this time. So focused on what God is calling us to do that we will do it whatever the consequences. And really the people around us, the culture around us says they're a barbarian. Because they don't do the way things the way they're meant to be done. They're broken out of the norms of culture. They're barbaric. Actually in their kindness and their love and their goodness to people around them. Or last week I upset all the pug owners didn't I, in the church? Were you here last week? When I said, actually, if you choose to follow Jesus, actually what happens is, is you're released, untamable, to run wild. And what we have done is actually made becoming a follower of Jesus a taming experience. 
that actually we've kind of presented somehow the choice to follow Jesus as taking the sharp edges off the person, of moving them out from the periphery and into the solid center. Actually, it's unleashing the wildness. And I talked what happens when you tame a wolf. What, what happens when you tame a wolf? Ultimately, you get a pug. You get a pug. And we were never made to be pugs who can't even breathe or run. You just look cute and are safe. That's why pugs have been bred, to be safe and cute. And somehow we've made Christianity into a pug. We say to people, become a Christian, you'll be safe. You'll be cute. We should be wolves and out there. So right at the heart of what we're talking about here in Hebrews and the thrust of this before we get into the details over the next few weeks, I've got some details to share with you this morning, actually is this image, this picture of what does it really mean to follow Jesus? That have we somehow in our own minds thought it's about a comfy armchair in which we can watch others do the sweat work? Or have we started thinking, well, it's a, it is a journey, but it's more like a meander through the woodland in the forest glades? Or how, have we somehow thought of it as a stadium 100-meter dash? There is a, a bit of hard work, but the rewards come very quickly. By the way, that is the image that dominates in what's called the prosperity gospel. Some of us might have encountered that. Churches, and there's some in our town, which teach a total and utter lie, fabricate in its entirety and pretend it's on Jesus' lips. I wish they'd just read their Bible like these kind of passages where they say if you choose to follow Jesus quite immediately there'll be the benefits and blessings of health, wealth and happiness. That's the 100 metre dash with the awards that come in this world. The main image is of a marathon. Run hard, run long, run difficult. So there's three things you can do this morning, three things you can immediately do this morning to get back in the race or to start the race. Let me just tell you them, and then I want to go back into this passage for a few minutes. Okay, the first thing, very practically, the first thing you can do to get back in the race, to start running hard, to pick those knees up and begin moving forward, or even to realize for the first time you're called to this race and the excitement of it, the first thing you can do is join a smaller group. Now, we intentionally keep our congregations nice and small. We say never more than 100 or so adults, so we can know each other, love each other, and encourage each other. But that is not enough. That is not enough. I encourage all of us to explore what it means to be in a smaller group that meets perhaps once a fortnight or once a week, that meets in the evening or during the day or for breakfast at six o'clock in the morning before you go off to work, who's based on a Saturday and you bring your kids along as well. Whatever it might be, but get into a smaller group of four or six or eight other men or women to encourage you, to share life, to be honest, to reflect together, to get to know each other well enough over a number of years that actually nothing is hidden from each other and you can be inspired and pushed on and pushed forward. So I really do say, explore being in a smaller group. Find out what that means for you and look into that. And the best way to do that is to talk to Chrissy. Most of us know Chrissy. If you don't know who Chrissy is, then you can email her, chrissy at thebeaconchurch.com, or you can just talk to me. That's the first thing you can do. Second thing you can do this morning, if you're a woman, is come along to the women's conference. Did you know that's happening? So we're just starting to talk about this. November uh, 17th, Saturday, November 17th, three of children, way, three of husbands, way, right? Yeah. Just the ladies together, fantastic array of speakers, a load of practical seminars about parenting, about singleness, about marriage, about money management, about your own spirituality. And the big thrust, thinking about how God has made you, the passions and the gifting he's given you, and what does that mean for the race that you are running? How do you put them into fantastic practice for the glory of God and the good of people around you and the joy of your own soul? 
What does that look like? And so find someone to look after the kids, all right? November 17th, Saturday, come along and be part of that day. If you're a lady, ladies only, that's why it's called a women's conference. The clue is in the title, right? Just the ladies together. All lady speakers, all women speakers as well, okay? Well, the third thing you can do this morning is get involved in our all-in course. Now, we initially designed this course to help people think about what it means to commit to us as members of our church, and it still does that. But what we've discovered is people find it phenomenally useful to kind of do an MOT of their spiritual life, to think, actually, where exactly am I? Am I truly all-in for Jesus? And what would it mean to be all-in for Jesus? Am I all-in for his people? And am I all-in for the mission that he's called me to be? What does it look like to be all-in for him? You would have got a flyer this morning with two parallel courses that initiate. Again, Chrissy is running that, and you can book your place by talking to Chrissy or to myself. There's a Thursday evening one, which is up here, that starts on November 6th, a couple of weeks' time. Uh, is, it, is it Tuesday? Tuesday? Tuesday evening, November 6th, uh, uh, starting uh, uh, in a couple of weeks' time. Or there's Sunday morning, 11 o'clock, and the Sunday morning one comes with some options of childcare and those sorts of things. Two parallel courses running at the same time. What does it be to be all in? So there's three things you could do immediately, very practically, to get yourself back in the race. Join a small group, get to the women's conference if you're a woman, come to the all in course and reassess where you are spiritually. Does that sound all right? Yeah? Now, noses down, let's spend five more minutes in this passage, okay? Because I want to also see some details out of this one session, one, one sentence. Because there's a trio of remedies for the meandering, the slow, or the weary uh, runner. There's a trio of God's remedy, remedy, remedies, remedies, remedies. I don't even know I'm saying it right now. Do you ever have that when you say a word? You know what I mean. There's a trio of things that will fix us. <laughs> For the meandering, the slow, or the weary runner, the one that thinks that they're going to look back, they're going to quit. Now, this might be for you this morning, one of these three. I'm only going to spend a minute or two on each one, okay? So you've got to swallow the pill quick if it's going to have an effect. But it might be for you right now because you know what it's like to be looking back, to be thinking of quitting. It might be for your future because the one thing true about a marathon is that at some point everyone feels tired and weary. Or it might be for your friend, that your job this morning is to be the carrier of the thing that will rescue your friend. And you're to take it from this morning into their life. Is it for you? Is it for your future? Is it for your friend? Now, the three remedies are pointed out to us because he uses his favorite words for applying stuff. Since we let us and let us. Have a look at sentence one. Spot them with me. There's an application comes after since we, and then there's two that come after let us and let us. There is favorite ways in Hebrews of applying truth. Have a look. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. There's three things. The first is, since we have this great cloud of witnesses around us, since we're surrounded by these great witnesses who have demonstrated in their own life what it means to follow Jesus. Now, I know the image we'd like here is of a big crowd cheering us on. That's what comes into our mind. We're running along like this, and everyone's cheering for us. Well, friends, I'm sorry, we're not the centre of attention when it comes to the universe. This This passage is not drawing that picture. Actually, it's saying this is a great crowd of people who, through their witness to God, speak to us about how we continue to witness to God. They're a great group that we can look at. They're not looking at us. 
We are called to look at them and see how they followed God in the most difficult of situations and be inspired by that to do it in ours. He's saying, look around you. Look back to those who have gone before. Now think for a moment, who therefore are your heroes who inspire you because of their commitment to Jesus when the going got tough? Now they may be Bible heroes, like Hebrews chapter 11 is full of Bible heroes. I love having Bible heroes. Every other week I change my hero in the Bible. I think that's allowed, right? At the moment, it's Lydia. Do you know Lydia in Acts chapter 16? What a remarkable woman she is. She's a successful single businesswoman running a fashion uh, enterprise that spans from Asia to Europe. She's in her European base in Philippi. She's a God-fearer but doesn't know Jesus. She meets Paul and Paul persuades her. And Lydia, within 10 minutes of choosing to follow Jesus, bends all of her wealth and her properties to serve the gospel. And she homes the first church in Europe. The first ever church in Europe is homed in Lydia's house in Acts chapter 16. What a woman. What a remarkable woman. Who's your Bible hero at the moment? So Lydia's inspiring me to look to God when it comes to my possessions and my property. Look to God like Lydia did and use it for his glory. Who are your Bible heroes? Or maybe it's not a Bible hero that you're called to look back on and see this great cloud of people who inspire us to lung. Maybe it's someone from history. So one of these for me at the moment is Charles Spurgeon. Now he's a big one, Charles Spurgeon. Victorian kind of era, 16 years old. He was one of the greatest preachers in the country. Set up a huge church in London. Began in a little village outside Cambridge. And then at about 21, took on this church in London where he was there until his death, really. He founded what was called Spurgeon's College, where both Kevin and I actually did our training and our degrees for, for being accredited as, as minister in one of the, the, the world's leading theological, Baptist theological country uh, uh, colleges in the country. And he planted at one point over a third of the churches in London were planted by Charles Spurgeon. He's a hero, isn't he? And yet in the midst of that, he suffered from severe depression, would have been clinically diagnosed nowadays, and had to take long, long, three months long summers in the south of France just to get to the point where he didn't feel like taking his own life. That side of his story is less often told because every Christian is called to run a marathon, and it takes guts and glory. Or maybe for you, it's someone who's much more contemporary to you. I've talked to you about Ron Howard Burt before over different Sundays, haven't I? You can listen back on different talks from the last few weeks to hear about Ron Howard Burt, who intersects into my life at all sorts of different points. When I was a 14-year-old boy who had no thoughts about Jesus, he sowed a seed and gave me a Bible that then began the journey to Jesus all those years later. When I was a 23, 24-year-old, newly married, and Hannah and I went searching for a church, happened to be back in my own town, walked into a church we'd never been before, and Ron Howard Burt looks down the road and remembers remembers my name from 10 years earlier. Ron Howard Burt, who at 83 years old, after his much younger wife retires, goes down to Cornwall, not to retire, but so he and his wife can run a heroin addicts recovery centre. There's a man who looks to God, isn't there? Or maybe it's a much closer contemporary that you're inspired by. Another friend of mine who pastors up in Edinburgh more recently, 
whose daughter is chronically seriously ill in a, in a, uh, with an illness that will end her life by her mid-twenties. She's now an early teenager. He himself signed off work with major breathing and cardiac issues for the last six weeks or so. And every time I've texted or called him to try and encourage me, I've been the one left encouraged by the depth of that man's faith in these uncertainties and these big why questions that he's having to ask about his life and his daughter's. So the first great hint is we are surrounded by a great cloud of those who inspire us by the race that they have run. It's not that they look at us and cheer us on. It's that we're meant to look at them and be cheered on by their faith and the way they had lived. Who is it for you? Who is it for you? Secondly, the let us, the first let us. Do you see it there? Let us throw off everything that so easily entangles. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. So this is about looking around at our own life and shedding everything that does not help us. It's about looking around in our own life and getting rid of everything that does not help us to run well for Jesus. Notice here the distinction in this sentence. Do you see? It says, uh, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. I'm quite encouraged by that. There's a difference between things that hinder and sin, right? He distinguishes between the two here, doesn't he? So sin is the bad stuff. And we look at that and say, is it sin? I shouldn't do it. That should be the Christian's response. That bit's easy. What's much more tricky is the everything that hinders bracket. Yeah? Because that's not necessarily bad. It's not stuff that is obviously sinful. It's just not a help. See, there's something fundamentally wrong if the only question you ask of anything, should I spend this money? Should I upgrade my car? Should I make this career choice? Should I send my children to this school? If the only question you ask is, is it sin? There's something fundamentally wrong. Okay? That's the only question you ask. You start there, is it sin? Well, if it is, don't go anywhere near it. But if it isn't, you then have to ask, is it helpful? Does it help me run hard for Jesus? So just 10 days ago, I was talking to a younger guy, late 20s perhaps, something like that. and And he said to me, Alex, is it possible to follow Jesus wholeheartedly and be really successful in my career. I said, what "What, what do you mean? What do you mean? You see, what transpired is he was looking ahead on his career progression. He was looking at the women and men in front of him on the career ladder, and he was saying, actually, that begins to demand 70-odd hours a week, 80-odd hours a week. And that's going to eat into this many weekends if I get to that run. There's nothing inherently sinful about that. It's not bad, but his question is, will it help me with the main thing I'm called to be, which is to pursue Jesus? Do you see the subtlety of the difference in the question? (coughs) Or it's like when I talk to university students, which I'll be doing in a couple of weeks' time, and guaranteed whenever I talk to university students up at Kiel or at Stoke or down in Birmingham uh, or Harper Adams where the agricultural students are, guaranteed if there's a week of talks, which is normally what I go and do, a week or so of talks to engage folk who aren't yet Christians and win them to Christ, guaranteed I'll be asked by a Christian at some point, um, how far is too far? Yeah? Yeah raging hormones of university life, okay? 
How far is too far? And always I say that's a fundamentally wrong question. Because you're basically saying, how close to sin can I get without sinning? Yeah? How near to sin can I get without sinning? Yeah? And actually I say to them, no, no, your question should be, what most helps us as a couple pursue Jesus? What is actually going to help us most run fast towards Jesus? And that's what this statement encourages us to do, you see. Throw off everything that hinders, everything that doesn't help, as well as the sin. They're two different packets. So my first question is about who inspires and helps you as you look around to the great crowd. My second question is actually look around you and shed everything that does not help. Not just the sin, but everything that does not help you run hard and fast. And third and finally, the last let us, do you see it there? Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. In the original, it's the us that actually has the emphasis. I think what's going on here, you see, is saying actually you're not called to run anyone else's race. Your job is to run the race that is marked out for you. That is your race. Worry about that race. Don't worry about anyone else's. Don't waste your time being critical of how someone else is racing or envious of the race someone else has. That's what we end up doing, isn't it? We either look at a different runner and say, they're not running very well, their technique is awful, or we look at someone else's race and are envious of how smooth their path is. And he's saying, no, 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 run the race laid out for you and nobody else. Don't look at other people and criticise. Don't look at other people and be envious. Just worry about your race and run your race and give it all that you have got. And actually, that's where the image of our modern-day marathons is unhelpful for us. Because our modern-day marathons are of one massive crowd following the same route, aren't they? I mean, I've run those marathons and I've loved those marathons, but some of me looks at them now and thinks, why did I do that? 20,000 people, and I can't even get a good pace, and I'm elbowing through. There's something fundamentally wrong with that image when it comes to the Bible. Because that is everybody running the same route. Yeah? Actually, the Christian marathon is about you running your route. Someone else running their route. Someone else running their route. None of our paths are the same. They intersect for periods with people, sometimes quite long periods. That's what marriage is. You run together but it's still yours and nobody else's. Unique to you and not the same as anyone else's. And so stop wasting your time criticising another runner's poor technique and decision-making in their race and don't waste your time being envious that the grass is greener and the path is smoother on their race. Just run your race. So lots of for you to think about. Either you can take one of those three practical steps I mentioned earlier, small group, Women's conference or the all-in course to get back on the race and run fast. Or maybe it's one of these remedies that is presented to us here in chapter, in chapter 12, sentence 1. That either you need to look back to those who have gone before you or are running with you and be inspired by their commitment to Jesus and the races that they have run. Or you need to look around you and throw off what is not helping you run and get rid of it. Or you need to look forward to your race and not to others and commit to the route that Jesus has you on and not be critical of that runner or envious of that race. So what's your action? Six to choose from. Small group, 
Women's conference, well, five if you're a chap then. Small group, women's conference, all in course. Look around you and be inspired. Look around you and shed what doesn't help. Look in front of you and commit to the race that you're on and stop looking at other people's. Six options. So turn to someone and tell them which one you're going to do. Okay? Go on. Off you go. Off you go. I'm going to give you a long time. Chat lots.